This is Stories of Win, where we showcase amazing women in neuroscience. We chat with them about their research, their unique journeys through academia, and what drives their passion for studying the brain. Here is one of their stories. I'm Meenakshi from Stories of Win, and I'm thrilled to be here today with Dr. Liberty Hamilton, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Speech, Language, and Hearing Sciences, Moody College of Communication, and the Department of Neuro Neurology, Dell Medical School at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you so much for letting me interview you, Liberty. Yeah, thank you for having me, Meenakshi. I would like to start off uh, by asking your neuroscience origin story. How uh, and when did you first become interested in studying the brain? This is a really good question. So I actually actually didn't always know that I wanted to study the brain. I had a little bit of a circuitous route um, in my undergrad. So I, I guess I first got interested in neuroscience in my undergrad years. Uh, so I went to Scripps College, which is a small liberal arts women's college in Claremont, California. And I originally went in thinking that I wanted to study geophysics. And the reason for that is I actually had a neighbor who uh, was a geophysicist or is a geophysicist. And I had had a summer job actually working at his company, doing some data entry and sort of low level stuff like that, uh, that, you know, high school students are allowed to do. Um, and I got really interested in what he was doing because I saw that they got to do really fun science and go to different countries and travel to places with volcanoes and Antarctica and all of this sort of stuff. And so I thought, this is amazing. That's what I want to do. And honestly, I ended up taking a class in geology and it just was not for me. I, I actually, <laughs> I think I was interested in it kind of for the wrong reason originally, where I was like, oh, I want to travel. Oh, I like, you know, the science part, but I actually had not done any of the science. And so at the time, I was taking classes in uh, Spanish language as well and music, specifically piano. And so I was already really interested in sounds and language and sort of more artsy humanities kind of subjects. And eventually I managed to... I don't even know how I learned about it, but I took an intro neuroscience class because the interdisciplinary nature of it really drew me. I, I feel like there are a lot of questions in neuroscience that are related to so many different aspects of science, but also art and culture and who we are and how we understand language. And so that was kind of what got me in there is it was like, this finally was a sort of field where I could combine all these different interests that I had, which is, I did really like science. Uh, I also like people um, and I really sort of liked thinking about how people think and how people can do things like speak another language and understand each other or how somebody can learn how to play an instrument. So that I think is probably directly what led to that. That's, that's so true. The interdisciplinary nature of neuroscience is, um, is amazing. And did you also um, get to do, um, get to maybe work in a lab or something like that? And did that um, make 
make you decide that you wanted to go to graduate school and, and pursue neuroscience after your undergrad? Yes, a little bit. So I did a little bit of lab work in my undergrad. Uh, and specifically, I do remember doing some of my first recordings in a neurobiology class where we got to uh, record from hippocampal slices and we were inducing LTP in these slices. And I, I remember thinking how cool this was that we could actually change things uh, in this circuit. And so that was super cool. But I didn't know at that time that I wanted to go to graduate school. And so I did actually take uh, two years and I worked as a research assistant at UCLA for those two years. And Basically, at the time, I knew that I wanted to stay in Southern California. And so I was looking all around and I was just randomly emailing people <laughs> for I didn't actually I don't think I applied to an actual job posting. I just cold emailed a lot of different faculty asking them if they were taking research assistance, which now I realize it was actually fine. I think sometimes it works out. Sometimes it doesn't. And I did get emails that said, no, I'm not hiring or no, I'm not doing the work that you want to do. But I got really lucky in that I uh, got this position at UCLA in their uh, neurology department, actually. And I was working with uh, one of my first neuroscience mentors, Catherine Narr, who uh, is still at UCLA in the Brain Mapping Center. And we were studying uh, structural and functional changes in the brain uh, of people with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. So it was working with people and doing things like MRI scanning and fMRI scanning. And the thing that I really appreciated about that was, you know, this was, it was a full-time job. And so I got to go to this really amazing building. I remember I, I interviewed for the job on the phone and I didn't, I hadn't seen the place. Uh, and so I ended up the first day on the job, I just get to this building and the building in that uh, neurology department uh, at the time, I'm sure it still is, but it was this amazing like LED lights on the ceiling and all of these computer racks, like they, they had these servers with all these, it, it felt like working in a spaceship basically. And so I thought, oh, this is amazing. <laughs> and so luckily that ended up being, um, a huge influence, I would say, is working with Catherine, um, and she was super supportive. Her lab was very small at the time, so it was me and one other RA for a while, and then we added on some other RAs and grad students eventually, but I feel like I got to be treated like a grad student, even though I was really early in my career. So that allowed me to kind of get excited about neuroscience and see what research was actually like. And that's when I decided, okay, I do want to go to grad school. That's great. Was there any uh, looking back or did, especially given that you were at Scripps and Southern California, did you um, consider a lab in geophysics as well? Or was there no looking back after you started? No, <laughs> <laughs> no by that point, no. By that point, I had already committed to the neuroscience major. And so I knew I liked neuroscience. I think what I was trying to decide on at that time was actually did I want to do an MD 
or an MD, PhD, or a PhD. And if I'm being fully honest, part of the not going for the MD is I remember hearing about how long the MCAT was, and it's it was like an eight-hour test or something at the time, and I thought, I don't really want to do that. So that was, and I think also I liked the creativity of research. So no, no matter what, I knew that I wanted to, or I thought I wanted to do research, but I still needed that extra time in this sort of gap years to really figure out that this was 100% what I wanted to do. Um, And how was your graduate school experience? Uh, Where did you go to graduate school um, and what research topics did you focus on? Yes. So in graduate school, so I went from UCLA to UC Berkeley. So I stayed in California for quite some time. uh, And I went into the Helen Wills Neuroscience Institute, which is their uh, neuroscience PhD program. And it was absolutely fantastic. I can't say enough good things about my time at Berkeley. I think that they're very supportive of the graduate students and my cohort in particular, I remember, uh, you know, I'm still very good friends with them and we all talk to each other. Some people are in industry, some people are in faculty positions and it's just been, uh, I don't know, it was it was a wonderful place to be. Yeah, so there at, at Berkeley, I worked with Shawen Bao, who was my uh, thesis advisor and he was also a wonderful influence on me. Um, a very detailed experimentalist. He's very hardworking, but also very humble. And he's one of those people where if you needed help and you're doing an experiment on the weekend at 6 p.m., he'd come and help you. So <laughs> it was just that kind of, it was it was a really, you know, lovely environment. And likewise, my lab mates uh, in that lab were fantastic. There were three women who were actually grad students two years above me when I joined the lab. And that was actually part of this, like, oh, I really want to join this lab because there are these fantastic other role models already in the lab um, who I really wanted to work with. That's that's such still a nice takeaway. Like sometimes, yes, it's it's partly the science, but it's also the people that attract us. Absolutely. To, um, you know, where we where we end up. Um, and what, what research topics did you focus on? Yes, yes. So in Xiaowen's lab, I was focusing on a uh, auditory cortex in a rodent model. And so looking at how the auditory cortex changes in response to um, early experience or modulation of different types of inhibitory cells. And so at the time that I was at Berkeley, sort of optogenetics was starting to become um, much more popular and used. And so this was around 2009 was when I started uh, trying to figure out how to use this relatively new technique. And I remember Shawen had said to me, you know, let's try using this. And I was a second year grad student. I'm like, yeah, sure. Yeah, I'm on board. And so I was able to shadow some other groups. Uh, so there was a postdoc, uh, Sunhee Lee, uh, who was in Yang Dan's lab, who actually took the time to show me how to do a lot of the different procedures for uh, inducing uh, channel rhodopsin, expressing channel rhodopsin in auditory cells of interest. And so that was another thing where it's like, she didn't have to help me, but she did. And just that sort of lovely supportive environment was was great. So 
So yeah, we were really looking at uh, how the auditory cortex responds to pure tones as well as natural sounds and how uh, those how the receptive fields within primary auditory cortex change as a response of stimulating different uh, cells within the network. So that, that was what I was working on mainly. Uh, I did also have the opportunity to do two other rotations. So in my first year, I rotated with Jack Gallant, who is an fMRI researcher. And uh, at the time, he now does a lot of different things, including looking at language and vision, uh, especially in natural environments. And so in that lab, I did a project on visual saliency and how saliency of visual scenes changes uh, encoding of information in the human brain using imaging. Uh, and I also worked with Frederick Tunison, who uh, was his lab was next door to Jack's, and they study both songbirds and humans. And so that was more related to what I was doing with Xiao Wen, and I was looking at uh, human perception of musical timbre, which is basically the quality of sound that determines uh, if you had the same note played by a trumpet and a flute. You can tell that it's a different instrument, but maybe it's, you know, they're exactly the same pitch, uh, but the sound quality. And so I, I did a behavioral study in Frederick's lab. And I, I guess the thing I want to emphasize too is this, throughout my time, I feel like I also had all three of these faculty mentors um, as people who I could go to for advice and asking about ideas. And so that, uh, I think, was a very valuable experience. That's, that, that's really amazing that you have especially emphasized that because it's really important to do rotations, especially for that reason, right? You have more mentors just outside um, the lab that you're working in, yes. and that's really important. Uh, but what was the reason that you eventually chose to work with uh, Wen? Was it the auditory cortex? Was it your, the, your interest in studying language? And uh, your, was that eventually why you got interested in the auditory system? Yes, I, I think it was a combination of a lot of things. And it was it was a hard decision for good reason, which is I actually really liked all of my rotations. Uh, but in Wen's lab, I think I was very excited about the possibility of starting optogenetics in the lab. And uh, I really felt that the other people in the lab uh, had given me this just really amazing and supportive experience. Uh, and that's not to say I still had that experience with the other labs as well. But I think it was yeah a combination of the topic and um, just excitement around these sort of new techniques that I was going to get to use. Um, and then another thing is actually, uh, so this is part of my reason for staying in California is actually uh, I was in a relationship with my now husband, who is also a neuroscientist. And so we were trying to stay in the same location. And so he and I uh, went to grad school together um, and actually applied to grad schools together. And he ended up joining Jack's lab. So we decided <laughs> also that we should not join the same lab because we thought it would be a better idea for us to have some separation <laughs> of the <laughs> stuff that we work on. And I think that was a good call. Would you say there were particular highlights during graduate school that, that made you decide, okay, you know, this is the road that I want to follow and, and it's academia and I want to do a postdoc? Mm. If that, that's a different question. So 
Yes and no. I think there were certainly lots of highlights of, uh, you know, amazing people who I was able to meet, conferences that I was able to go to or present at, uh, and just being able to, there was actually a collaboration at the very end of my PhD uh, between myself, my now husband, and then two friends of ours. And that collaboration was super fun. And it was just like being able to work together with smart people who are also your friends. And I don't know, I just really liked that uh, ability to just kind of be creative and puzzle out a question and, and try to answer it. But at the same time, near the end of grad school, I, like a lot of people, got a little bit burnt out. So I, it, it was like both positive and this sort of just tiredness that sometimes happens. And so I actually did think about going into industry uh, near my fifth year. And I was kind of flirting with the idea. And I had a group of friends uh, where we basically, every week we would go uh, and we would do yoga, we'd go to a yoga class, we'd have happy hour, and then we would discuss our career, like what we thought we wanted to do with our lives. Uh, It was great. (laughs) And so with that, you know, we're all trying to decide what do we want to do? Do we want to stay in academia? Do we want to go into an industry job? And what would that look like? And so I thought about data science at the time. I had worked uh, with the Berkeley Science Review as that's their graduate student magazine uh, doing visualizations for them. And so that actually helped me have a little portfolio of some things that I had made that were outside of my main projects. And I did some, I guess what you would call informational interviews, which is where you talk to somebody at a company and you see what is it, what is their job like and would you like to do it? And I really liked everyone that I spoke with. But then in the end, I didn't find any companies that I was as excited about working for at the time. And I kind of came to the conclusion that I did really like research and it was more just, okay, maybe I need a little break. Uh, And so I applied for postdocs and managed to get a postdoc with Eddie Chang at UCSF uh, doing ECOG. So that's intracranial recordings in patients with epilepsy. And that allowed me to go back to working with humans, which I also really like, uh, but answering questions about uh, auditory cortex and the circuitry of the parts of the brain that help us speak and hear and understand language. And so, yeah, I I guess it's a long answer to a short question, I realize, but um, that's kind of where I was at the time. And uh, I'll also just add that it was a big privilege for me to be able to do this, but I ended my PhD in December. And then I managed to have uh, my job lined up so it would start in February. And so for the whole month of January, um, my husband and I went to New Zealand. So, <laughs> and we went backpacking around New Zealand. And so like once we got there, it was pretty cheap because we were just camping mostly. And that was a great break. And I felt very refreshed and ready to take on my postdoc. That sounds like the perfect way to, you know, um, get over a burnout and and come back and, and feel refreshed. I mean, thanks for sharing that because yeah. I feel everyone goes through 
like the space where they feel so burned out. I went through that at the end of my PhD. And and it's important to realize that that doesn't necessarily mean that um, that it's that you're not meant for research. It just means that sometimes we need to take a break and, yes. and get back to it. Yes, I think that's absolutely true. Yeah. So that's why I like to tell people this, too. It's like, no, I didn't always know that I wanted to do this. I I'll also say uh, one of my first mentor, Catherine, who I was speaking about earlier, she, I think, had had a previous career in something completely separate from neuroscience. And then she changed her mind and went into neuroscience. And so I think this idea of also you can change your mind, I think, is kind of powerful as well. So my thought was, okay, if I go into my postdoc and then I absolutely hate it, I can do something else and that's okay. Um, but it worked out that I actually really did like it and I wanted to continue. So, um, but just knowing you have that option, it's, it's fine. And I have friends who are in industry and are super happy and doing very fulfilling, exciting work. And I have people who are in academia doing exciting and fulfilling work. Uh, both people can be equally, you know, happy about their job and sometimes tired. <laughs> I think, you know, it's just, there's a balance of things no matter what you do. Uh, okay, so let's talk a little bit about um, your postdoctoral work. So like you mentioned, you uh, moved from working in mice to, to working in humans um, with ECOG. So how was, how was that transition? Uh, did it feel very different um, working with humans? And uh, and also given that you were working on something like, like a very cutting edge tool at the time, like optogenetics, um, how how did how did that feel now that field is not there right now to, to use such a tool in humans? Yes, yes. No, I, I think it was an interesting transition because in some ways it was easier than I expected and in some ways hard. Uh, the hard things were, of course, when you work with epilepsy patients, which I also do now, uh, there's a lot less experimental control that you have over the setup. Uh, so if you're recording data from patients who are in a hospital during their inpatient stay, you have very little control over the schedule of when that actually happens. And you also don't have very much control over, you know, people coming in and out of the room interrupting um, or even somebody's phone goes off. You know, we can ask people, we put up a sign on the door that says, you know, experiments are in progress. Uh, please be quiet. <laughs> uh, but it doesn't always happen versus with the rodent lab we had a sound booth and I was in a very quiet room that was everything is shielded and much more under my control. But at the same time, with when I was working with mice, for example, uh, for a brief period, I was trying to do some training, uh, frequency training with mice. It did not end up getting published. Uh, and essentially, it was very hard to do. It's very hard to do behavioral training. Uh, and it takes a lot of time. And so I really have a lot of respect for people who do those sorts of experiments and are able to get that type of data because it is not easy versus a person you can explain the task to. So you just tell them what to do. Uh, and so that part is is much easier. But yeah, I think it, it was interesting because it was kind of moving from this cutting edge uh, optogenetics and, and that sort of realm into another different type of cutting edge work, which is more on the sort of human recording side. And so I think 
Um, part of it was also, so, you know, rodent surgeries require a lot of uh, steady hands <laughs> and good motor skills. And I feel like mine are okay. Uh, they're, they're fine. Um, but I really enjoy my coffee. And if I drink enough coffee, I get a resting tremor. <laughs> so, so I would need to cut down a lot more on that. So it's kind of a silly reason, but one of steady hands. <laughs> and like you highlighted, um, what you were doing was actually also cutting edge in terms of um, recording from humans. And I, if I remember right, you also did some like electrocortical stimulation. And even though it's very different from optogenetics, you still start, saw very you know, stark effects. Could you could you talk a little bit about that? And, and how was it, you know, seeing that in real time and, and like getting the feedback from the patients you were recording from? So the, the stimulation experiments are really interesting. So actually, Cortical stimulation is used uh, clinically in patients with epilepsy. So let me start with the overall surgery and how that happens why, and why they're having it. Sure. So yeah. the patients that I work with both now and in my postdoc are patients with medication-resistant epilepsy. Sometimes it's also called intractable epilepsy. And that just means that they have tried a bunch of different medications, usually at least three, and those medications do not work to control their seizures adequately. So they might be having multiple seizures per day. It makes it difficult for people to go to school, hold a job, drive, all sorts of kind of normal everyday activities that they would like to be able to participate in. And so what they can do is um, there's a type of surgery where after many different non-invasive methods as a workup prior to this, the person will come in and have electrodes actually placed directly into their brains in a surgery. And those electrodes can be either on the surface of the brain as a grid, or they can be depth electrodes where they actually penetrate through the brain tissue. Um, and so this is invasive. It requires a surgery. And those electrodes are there for around a week or so. Uh, and they're recording electrical activity in the brain. And the point is for the clinical team, they want to look at which electrodes have seizure activity on them. Um, and are they localized to a particular area of the brain? And if so, is it safe to resect or actually take out that area in a surgery? And so they want to be able to do those surgeries without affecting a person's speech and language and movement. So one of the things that the clinical team will do is use stimulation, like you were saying. So Cortical stimulation can be used to identify which areas are critical for speech, uh, both understanding and talking, and also which areas are critical for movement. And so what they do is for the speech task, there will be a, a surgeon or an epileptologist stimulating a specific area of the brain while a person is either trying to listen to words uh, or trying to talk out loud. And what they do is if they stimulate an area that's required for understanding, then let's say 
uh, if I apply the stimulation while the person is hearing the word federation. That's one of the words they use, actually. They're always four syllables or so. Uh, and so they, they hear federation, but there's stimulation happening at the same time. That can actually interrupt their ability to understand that. And so they might know that they heard something, but they won't be able to report what it is. And so it's really surreal to see this because it's, you know, you can be talking to someone and then you stimulate this part of their brain and they'll say, oh, I I heard something, but I don't know what it was. It sounded garbled or I only heard the very beginning or the very end of it. So that, yeah, I think surreal is maybe the best word to describe it. Uh, and for speech production areas, often those ones, there are some areas where if you stimulate speech motor areas, a person will actually vocalize. So they won't say full words. I don't think we're there yet, but it's more like you stimulate and they'll go, ah, like you'll hear just them using their larynx and saying ah or eh or something. And then other areas where if you stimulate and they're trying to start talking, but it will stop them. So let's say you're telling someone to count to 10 and continue counting. And then let's say I'm going to pretend to stimulate when I get to the number four. So I'm the patient saying one, two, three, and then stimulation goes off and then they'll say four. So it's it, it can actually stop the person from speaking. So what we found that you were alluding to that I think is really exciting is in my work with Eddie, which I started in my postdoc and then continued collaborating with him as a junior faculty member. So um, so with Eddie Chang, Yulia Oganian, who's now also junior faculty uh, at Tübingen in Germany, uh, and Jeffrey Hall, we were working on this project and we had been trying to compare primary auditory cortex uh, to an area called the superior temporal gyrus, which is close in proximity to, it's still part of what we call auditory cortex, but we know it's particularly important for understanding speech. And we were kind of wondering whether primary auditory cortex should also be necessary uh, for speech in the same way that STG is. Because there was a lot of, if you look at diagrams of sort of how the auditory pathway works and which areas connect to which other areas of the brain, often they show everything goes through primary auditory cortex first and then goes out to the, what we call association regions. And so we thought, if that's the case, an STG or superior temporal gyrus has to receive inputs from A1, then if we block A1, it's like putting up a roadblock in the road. You can't go on to the next stage. And so we did that with stimulation where we're trying to see, okay, now if we stimulate A1 instead of STG, does that also impair their ability to understand speech and repeat it back? And it turned out it does not, which was the thing that was, um, I think, quite striking. Uh, and so seeing this dissociation where they actually could still hear speech, but when we stimulated primary auditory cortex, they heard an extra sound on top of the speech. So this, this I think, suggests that 
that can't be the only area that STG is receiving input from. So it's kind of like if you had one road, uh, that road has to have a fork in it before you get to the primary auditory cortex. So we're kind of looking into what that might be um, now. Uh, and so I don't have answers exactly yet uh, on that, but I'm very excited about it. And so, yeah, certainly I think it has a lot of implications for how we understand speech and language processing in general, and then also for neurosurgery. So knowing which areas are um, required for which types of uh cognitive tasks uh, is is really important for being able to do surgeries safely and also knowing what kind of uh, problems someone might be at risk for, let's say, uh, and trying to avoid those as much as possible. That is very cool. And in terms of the, the translational um, relevance for epileptic patients, so if, let's say, the, the locus um, was um, in the primary auditory cortex because, like you said, even if uh, if you were to surgically ablate that, would you say they'll still be able to hear because of this other parallel road for speech perception? Yes. So we have seen that, or at least uh, so Eddie, who does the surgeries, um, has seen that in recent patients. I think they recently had a case study. Uh, so Patrick Hullett, who is an MD-PhD from UCSF, published showing that uh, actually Heschel's gyrus, which is part of where primary auditory cortex is, resection can be done safely without affecting speech. And Jeffrey Hall, who was our collaborator on our paper um, that came out in Cell uh, in 2021, also that, that was how we originally thought about this as potentially being um, involved in a different way. So I, I think what I would like to know now is obviously we, I think we have all of our brain tissue for a reason. And so it's just, what is, what is it actually doing? So is it something like if we are listening in a noisy environment, is it more important that we have both of our uh, primary auditory cortex on the left and the right side? And so I don't think we have an answer to that yet, but for just speech in general, it seems that um, that can be done safely. Right. That is that is really cool. Uh, but in, in general, going from working um, with mice to, to answering such questions in humans, did you just feel like the kind of impact your research had or the translational relevance it had? Did you feel like that changed? And did that just change your perspective about research? Uh, a little bit. I, I think there's still a lot that can be learned at all levels. And so I actually do like to stay in touch with my colleagues who work on animal models or who work directly in clinical research or, you know, from the whole set of levels, I guess, from micro to macro scale. Uh, I think it's important for all of us to kind of talk to each other. But I do, I, I mean, I definitely can't emphasize enough how yeah, working directly with patients has really um, had an impact on me and thinking about how to help people who have this type of epilepsy, because everybody has their own story of, uh, you know, how it's been for them. And, and some a lot of people have had a very difficult road where, you know, they're trying to live their lives normally and they're just things that that happen that. Um, shouldn't be, you know, and, and there's still also a lot of stigma, I think, for people with epilepsy and especially um, 
I know that kids can get bullied and things like that. And so here in Austin, there's actually uh, a camp called Camp Brainstorm that is for kids with epilepsy specifically. So because a lot of the time they are uh, they might not be allowed to participate in certain summer camps because of having seizures. But this is a camp where all of the campers do have epilepsy and the camp counselors uh, either have medical training or they have medical staff there who can help if needed. But it's more like just giving a sort of normal life. But yeah, so I think, you know, meeting the folks and having them sort of willing to help with our research, even when they're going through something difficult like brain surgery is is pretty inspiring and so I'd like to I still feel like a lot of what I do is on the basic science side and so I I I want it to be helpful but I also think some of it might take more long term um, for us to really know for sure. I mean, even though you didn't want to, you know, spend long hours on the MCAT exam, I feel like you've come really close. You found your <laughs> your path that yes. you're also passionate about and you actually come really close to it. That's great. No, that's <laughs> true. It's like about as close as you can get to <laughs> medical school slash doctor without. <laughs> yeah. Right. yeah. Um, so now in your own lab, um, do you work with both mice and humans or is it just humans? And could you just tell us briefly uh, the kind of questions your lab is interested in? Yes. So now I just work with humans and I am working both with patients with epilepsy as well as healthy participants in the community. And so we have kind of two different methods that we use. The first one is intracranial recordings, like I talked about. Um, So ECOG, electrocorticography, or stereo EEG, those are both kind of words for the same uh, general concept. And there we're looking at uh, actually auditory and speech processing in kids and how those responses to speech change from childhood to adolescence. And so a lot of that is building on work that I first started getting interested in in graduate school on using natural stimuli. Uh, And that's been super important for working with kids because we want to use, uh, we want to have tasks that are actually fun for the kids to do because they're in a hospital, number one. And so we don't want to do anything that's going to be, you know, horrible or really boring or that they just don't like. And so something that's actually entertaining, um, both is good for them and is good for us because the data quality is better. We can still answer the same questions. Um, And so that's one side of it. And the other side has been sort of valid the use of natural stimuli and comparing them to more controlled stimuli that people use in typical experiments. And we do that with scalp EEG as well. So that's something that I actually picked up um, as a faculty member, uh, mostly in a way because, so I'm in a maybe not totally unique position, but um, I don't, I'm not a neurosurgeon myself. And so for me to now do intracranial recording research as a faculty member, I have to have collaborators who are, uh, you know, part of a medical team, but that takes a while to set up. And so actually just getting everything set up when I first got my lab going took several years. And so during that time, I also was fortunate to have a um, colleague here at UT who was working on scalp EEG. And so he um, 
had this EEG system that uh, basically his grad students helped me learn how to use, and now I'm using it as well. Uh, so that has been really great for looking at things like auditory attention and processing of audiovisual natural scenes. So I think those are the main components. Great. Um, could you tell us a little bit about um, how your mentors have influenced and shaped your vision for what kind of a mentor you want to be? Um, and or like if you have any advice you've received from a mentor that really stuck with you that you want to share with our listeners? Yeah, I think uh, I mean, I definitely have been influenced by all of them in different ways. I think certainly all of them have a very strong work ethic, which I also <laughs> I think I have. And I but I think it's also out of uh, actually like a real passion for doing stuff that I'm interested in. And so that's why I want to work hard on it. Uh, but also finding the right group of people to work with. And I think this has been a theme of our conversation a little bit, which is, you know, I really feel that in each lab that I was in, the the thing that made it so nice to be there was really the team of folks and having people with different expertise from a lot of different backgrounds uh, was very valuable to me as a graduate student and a postdoc. And so I try to seek that in my own lab. And so having students that come from different backgrounds, both undergrad and graduate students, clinical students. Uh, and so I think that's very valuable. Is there any advice you would give yourself if you, um, you know, during your graduate school or postdoc? <laughs> Everybody's faking it a little bit all of the time. <laughs> I think it's like at every stage you're always learning. Uh, and so certainly I do feel like since I started graduate school, I definitely know a lot more than I used to because I have more experience. But at the same time, I'm always learning things that are new too. I learn from my students. I learn from my collaborators. I learn from making mistakes. Uh, and so not being so hard on yourself for not knowing stuff. Because I think at the beginning of grad school, I was very, uh, you know, everybody it's very common, I think, to have that imposter syndrome. And it kind of doesn't always go away fully. <laughs> so just realizing that and realizing that a lot of people feel the same. And so just, yeah, worrying about that a little less. No, that's a beautiful one. And um, it also, it's perfect for my next question, which is, so we've captured like the amazing highlights of your scientific trajectory, but I'm sure there were so many hurdles and, you know, like the imposter syndrome and, and there, there I'm sure there were so many um, points in your career where there were challenges you faced and, and maybe even like considered alternate alternate career choices which you which you alluded to. Um, so what were some of the sources of inspiration for you during these challenging moments? How did you bounce back? Um, and you also mentioned a little bit about um, your partner who was also like a graduate student at that point. So did that did that kind of help like growing together and like kind of being on the same trajectory and seeing someone really close to you also go through the same thing? Yes. Yes, I think we worried that it could go one of two ways, like it could either be really horrible. <laughs> and, you know, we both just get frustrated because we're stressed at the same time. But if anything, no, that's been that's been wonderful to have someone who really knows uh, and understands what I'm going through and is going through something similar. So I, I do really appreciate that. Um, yeah, I think just knowing that 
uh, a lot of the challenges eventually will pass or at least I don't know. I mean, yeah, there's been so many, there's always good and bad things that happen that you can't necessarily anticipate and you'll try to. And then, um, you know, like COVID, for example. (laughs) So it's like the pandemic happened right in the middle of my early faculty career, which I, I think for many, many people, that was a horrible blow to the things that we're working on. It totally changed the way that we think about remote work and the way, you know, that we were collecting data. Uh, But at the same time, for all of those challenges, eventually you move through it and maybe things don't end up the way that you expected, but you'll make it work. Um, So I, yeah, I really think a lot of it is just like relying on friends and family and that support system. That's the biggest thing because those challenges are always going to hit. You don't know if they're going to be personal or professional, Um, but yeah, that's what you need. You need to find a good support system. The support system. Yes, definitely the theme of our our conversation. <laughs> um, okay, finally, we would like to get to know a little bit about Liberty outside the lab. Um, so what are some of your favorite hobbies or activities that especially that, that help you, you know, uh, feel more relaxed and refreshed when you come back again? Yes, I think for me, a lot of it is spending time outdoors. And so I I grew up in Boulder, Colorado, uh, which is a very like outdoorsy place in general. People love to move there to go hiking and skiing and things like that. And so definitely hiking and skiing, I enjoy a lot. Um, Actually, snowboarding, but I have I have not gone in several years now, uh, partially because we now also have a dog. And so part of my uh, hobbies involve, you know, anything that I can do with my dog. So uh, walking and hiking and uh, here in Austin, there's really good uh, kayaking and sort of things that you can do out on the lake. Um, And so that has been a really nice aspect of living here. Uh, I would say I'm also kind of a foodie. So I like good food. Um, With the pandemic, that's been harder. So I think that's cut down on my, uh, you know, knowledge of restaurants, but that's definitely something I like to do. Um, And I don't know, I've gone through different hobbies in the past. Uh, One of them that I picked up during graduate school that I haven't done as much, but I would recommend for people who have to do experiments where let's say you're doing an experiment where you have to place some equipment in some configuration and then you have to record data for 15 minutes at a time. So it's not quite long enough to do anything useful. Uh, And so I tried to do things like reading papers and I could never actually get into them. I started knitting. So knitting, (laughs) that was kind of nice because it's like, it's kind of mindless. And even if your experiment doesn't work out, you might have a scarf at the end of it. So, I really like that. Yeah. I'm sure like we've all been there, you know, when we have 15 minute gap while we are recording and be like, maybe I can finish this paper, but it never happens. And yeah, at least it's nice to have a scarf at the end. I like that. Yeah. So something to do with your hands. Um, so yeah, outdoorsy stuff. Um, playing the piano, I still try to play a little bit, um, though not nearly as much as I used to. Um 
And actually, one of I, I think you had asked me about mentors before, and one of the people I also meant to mention is actually one of my piano teachers in college, um, Hao Huang, uh, is also an amazing influence. And I don't know if he knows this, but it's like, you know, he he was one of those people in undergrad who, uh, you know, I was a piano performance minor. Uh, and so I had to take piano throughout. Um, and so it was these sort of one-on-one lessons. And it was always like both playing the piano and sort of life advice from Dr. Huang. And that was just, it was lovely to have. And he also got really excited about the neuroscience of music and talked to me about like, how can I make my majors sort of fit together? And, and so that that was that was fun. That's that's sweet. I hope he listens to the podcast and I'm sure he'll feel so I proud. Hope so too. <laughs> <laughs> great, great. Thank you so much, Liberty. Thanks for taking the time out and thanks for sharing your inspiring story with us. It's been it's been such a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Mm-hmm.